Welcome to the Ipsos Politics Talk podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Now, regular listeners will know that we like to talk about the latest opinion polls and developments in Westminster and beyond on this show. But in the long run up to the next general election, we want to take some time to deep dive into the big issues too. And today that means the topic of levelling up. A phrase that is often talked about, but rarely fully understood in this host's humble opinion. So what does it all mean? What do the public think about it? And what implications might levelling up have for the very thorny issue of the next general election? To find out more, I'm joined by senior Ipsos researcher, Holly Day. Holly, welcome. Hi, Kieran. Uh, I'm joined by Paul Swinney, Director of Policy and Research at the Centre for Cities. Uh, hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And Dr. Henry Kippin, Chief Executive of North of Tyne Combined Authority. Welcome, Henry. Hi, Kieran. Hi, all. Um, so I suppose a good place to start, Holly, really, is this, this subject about what are we talking about today? So obviously levelling up has been, again, as I said in the intro, a phrase that um, is bandied about a lot. But I wondered if you could just talk us over briefly some of Ipsos's work in this area uh, and just give us an overview of what we kind of know. Yeah, so thinking back to, to last year, February 22, the government released their long-awaited levelling up white paper. I can't remember if it was delayed three or, or four times. It might be more than that. Someone can, someone can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But it finally got released and it contained these 12 missions. So it said that they were all quantifiable things that were to be achieved by 2030. And they were aimed really at being uh, this package of cross-government objectives. So what we did at Ipsos was then we decided to use these missions to create what we call our levelling up index. So behind each of the 12 mission headings, we devised a number of public perception questions. So things like, what are the public's priorities on things? What are their attitudes? What are their opinions? And then we ran these surveys on our UK knowledge panel, which is our random probability panel of the general UK public. And from the responses that the public give us on this, we then calculate a score for each mission. And this ranges from between plus 200 and minus 200. Now, the higher the score that someone gets on this, the more positive the direction, the more positive the public perception is on this on this mission. And we're then able to repeat these surveys with the same questions and track over time how public perceptions change. So um, our latest results were released last month. That was the third wave of our tracker. Um, it, it was released in, in February. And crucially, it's one year on from these missions being set out. So we've got some really good data points to be able to, to track public perceptions over time here. And I think it's worth pulling out a couple of key findings from the from the latest round. So it's hard to ignore the politics, I guess, to begin with. This was a, a policy priority and a campaign focus for Boris Johnson at the last election. He made it uh, his his big priority. He was talking about it a lot in his keynote speeches. It was the phrase of the day, really. Uh, a department came out of the back of that. So we've got the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. We've also got a Secretary of State responsible for that, so Michael Gove. And this is the legacy that Rishi Sunak now has to compete with. And he doesn't seem to be banging the drum quite as loudly as his, as his former boss. Um, so in terms of the impact for people on the ground, the key finding, I guess, is our latest index showing that 80% of people thinking the government doesn't care about places like their local area, which is a consistently high statistic we've seen across the waves of our of our data set. And I'd be interested in what others um, think about that statistic, with it being quite so high. Yeah, I'll come, I'll come to the guests here. I mean, I suppose 
it is just brief remarks from me first from the politics uh, angle i mean when we look at um, public opinion on the issues that matter most to people um we tend to find the economy cost of living um healthcare nhs and and, and to a lesser extent recently um sort of issues around immigration and small boats dominating what the public think but of course a lot of these issues are interwoven in many respects with this idea of leveling up. You know, you, when you talk about the NHS and healthcare, you, you know, most people think about, yes, they think about the institution, but they also think about their local hospital. When they think of the cost of living in the economy, people often think about their local area too. Um, and of course, there is this sort of cliche that all politics is local. And so, so I suppose this idea that the Conservatives may or may not have delivered on some of this uh, in the run up to the next election could be quite powerful, even if the public are never going to say, uh, that leveling up as a topic is the most important sort of face in the country. I think a lot of these uh, the issues that they will say tend to be sort of interwoven within it. I mean, Paul, I'll come to you first. I mean, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of this uh, a bit later to do with your subject area of cities and, and and other areas of devolved policy too. But what's your kind of headline takeaway of some of these numbers? It's clear from what Holly's saying that there's a fair amount of discontent about how government is... Um, is supporting some local areas. Well, it's very interesting, I think, to, to get some numbers around this. There are, there are a few things that come out from it, which I think are, are worth drawing on. So the first is around people or thinking that the government doesn't care. I think that is quite a, an interesting one, given how much focus has been given over to the level up agenda in recent years. Um, certainly there's been more spoken about it, but it seems that what has probably been quite a long running uh, resentment, which is, you know, the national doesn't care about the local very much, continues despite that. It'll be then be very interesting to see how that plays out at the, the next election, whenever that is going to be. I think there's a second element to this, or so maybe it points to a bit of the psychology around this, which makes it politically very difficult, is around the nature of, of how people feel about whether they get more money than elsewhere. And I think that your findings shown have consistently shown that people tend to feel that they don't get their fair share and somewhere else always gets more. So, well, everywhere can't feel like that because somewhere's got to be getting got to be getting more somewhere in the system if that indeed is the case. And I think that points to it, perhaps a, a perception and an issue or maybe about how people have a, an expectation of what they're going to receive and it always falls short of that, which is uh, something which is very difficult to square in politics if you're constantly fighting against that. Because how do you ever win any broadheads eventually if, if there's this inbuilt thing that someone else is always getting more than, than me and that's a... And that's fascinating in terms of the small p politics around this and what it then means for the agenda. I suppose, Holly, just before I bring Henry in, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting subject what Paul raises there, because I mean, I talked about immigration earlier, and that isn't isn't the subject of this podcast. But I mean, it's it's fair to say that you often find that people will say immigration is too high, almost irrespective of, of the actual numbers. I mean, that, that, there's a sort of ingrained perception there. And I sort of wonder to what extent with the idea of my local area is short changed, it may well very be a similar thing going on. So I suppose, so as in, it's very hard to imagine that a particular local community or local region would say, oh, no, no, no we're fine, thanks. Uh, we're all sorted. So I suppose in many ways, what that, as a researcher, what that makes me want to do is to look at the relative scores across the different regions to sort of say, okay, generally speaking, people might not think their local area gets enough, but where's that feeling felt most strongly and does our data show that are there particular regions or areas of uh, of britain that that feel this this that they're not getting a fair share more than others 
yeah, this definitely comes through quite strongly in our data. And I'm, I'm conscious I don't want to make this a north-south divide uh, podcast, being a proud northerner myself. But the northern regions do particularly stick out. We do cut the data in other ways as well um, to be able to see that intra-regional difference also. Um, the numbers were particularly stark on, on the message that Paul was talking about here, where people just don't feel like Westminster spends enough on that area compared to others. So, um, for example, in the southeast, 30% of people think the government spends less in their area than others. This jumps up to three quarters for the northeast and two thirds for the northwest. So almost twice as many people in those northern regions um, are feeling hard done by in that respect compared to compared to in the southeast. And that message stands out across most of the perception data that, that we collect. So um, I don't know if, Henry, you've got a thought on that, being uh, being part of the north of Tyne yourself, given the northeast is one of those regions that, that sticks out um, quite sharply in our data sets. Yeah, I think, I think there's a really, really interesting long-term uh, issue here about, well, as Ben Page was quoted years ago, uh, of wanting Swedish welfare with American taxes for, for the UK as a whole, and that we're, we're, we're kind of mid-Atlantic in that sense. Um, for the Northeast in particular, clearly there is an issue here about feeling the need to benefit from infrastructure spending, just as our colleagues in the rest of the country have. If you look at issues like HS2, if you look at the um, extensions of the underground in London, you know they're, they're, they're perceived to be really transformative investments that haven't touched the region. But what, what, what levelling up does, I think, and does really uh, critically well is it starts to blend the need for economic infrastructure and social infrastructure to be brought together as part of the conversation. People experience both and, and for too long we've had a, a dialogue really that's about growing the economy on the one hand and then improving public services on the other. And I think you have to be seeing them both as part of the same conversation. Certainly that's the way the public experience things. And Henry, your uh, experience uh, you know, in your role in the North, I mean, do, do you find that when you're speaking to the public and uh, you, know, you know, in the various work that you do, do, do these results chime with what your experiences have been in terms of that discontent that maybe the North's getting short, or in your case, the Northeast is getting shortchanged vis-a-vis the rest of the country? To an extent, but also people want a positive narrative. They want a positive story about where their place is going in future. And I think where you can see uh, devolved areas of the country being more successful, they've been able to put on the table a version of what good looks like in 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And that, that's up to us in the regions to, to, to do that. And in a way, that, that starts to answer the question about where the funding comes from to ever deliver levelling up to. Because if we're sat back waiting for central government to apply an East German style 2 billion every year for the next 30 years, we're going to be waiting a long time. So actually being able to see levelling up as something that's not just about central government and is not just about public money is absolutely vital because the investment case that the regions put forward has to be positive and has to be investable from a private sector point of view too. I'll come back to you, Holly, now. I do like this idea of the, the sort of the mid-Atlantic, you know, Scandinavian services on the on, on North American tax. So we, obviously, if you uh, if you end up too mid-Atlantic, you end up in the sea, don't you? So uh, that's probably not a great place to be. So metaphor there. But let's get into the detail of this a bit more. So let's talk about cities and public services, and I'll, I'll come to Paul in a moment. Um, but so what? What? I mean, one of the things that strikes me as not an expert in levelling up is obviously that. 
you know, when we look at different regions of the countries, clearly there are economic centres. Clearly there are places uh, that uh, where a lot of economic activity and a lot of people live, frankly. So, what does our research say about that and about what people think of uh, cities and public services generally? Yeah, so we did ask a couple of questions as part of the levelling index about investment in large cities and that being able to kind of proliferate out uh, across the, the regions that those cities are part of. Um, it'd be interesting to get, Paul, your views on that because I know you do a lot of a lot of work in that area. Um, it doesn't seem, however, that this is chiming with the with the public from our perceptions data on, on people feeling that will make a positive difference. So we have 37% of people across the UK telling us that they think investment in large cities within their areas would make a positive difference to their local area and to, to their lives. Um, almost half, though, said it would make no difference, which I think is quite a striking, uh, quite a striking figure, and a very small proportion. So, kind of one in ten were saying that it would it would make a negative a negative difference. Um, it'd be interesting to look at the data, particularly from these areas in the north, because we've highlighted those as having negative figures on some of the other questions. Whether these sentiments are a result of kind of the arrangements that are already in place in some of these big cities. So we'll probably go on at some point to talk about the the recent trailblazer deals that places like Greater Manchester, uh, the West Midlands ha have seen and the, and the benefits that have come through that. Um, but we're not seeing a tangible effect on public perception of, of basically the public thinking that a way to go about making their local area better is by by investing in a big city near them. Yeah, Paul, what are your thoughts on that? Because it strikes me as a, I am the cliche guy living in North London, you know, uh, getting on the, getting on the tube every day, all that sort of stuff. And it's very easy. I mean, I was born in Bedford, so I'm very much a child of the southeast uh, and a bit of Ireland. Uh, but obviously, these things, all joking aside, these things are obviously different in different areas of the country. So, I mean, what's your take on some of the findings that Holly's mentioned there, and just uh, the role of role of cities uh, uh, in, in levelling up? As someone who gets on the tube every day in North London, but was born in Sunderland, hopefully I get to uh, have uh, yeah, best both of both worlds. Well, <laughs> I, I think Henry's uh, Henry's background is, is not too dissimilar as well in terms of different parts of the country where uh, he is lived as well. I am really, really pleased you asked this question because I think it really gets to the heart of, of the agenda. And again, this this second political heading that we've got. So we've just discussed the first one, which is you know everywhere feels we just don't get enough. The second one then is about well, what is the perception about where you spend that money and what the links between uh, different parts of the country, even within the North. And clearly this has been politically very thorny in the last couple of years. And we've talked about left behind places, about the cities being the towns to beat. And uh, the economics shows, and a lot of our research shows, which has then gone and influenced the government's thinking around this, is that the reason why large spaces of the North underperform is because they're big cities so Manchester, Birmingham and Glasgow in particular, you know, much smaller than what they should be. If you compare them to their, uh, their counterparts on the continent, they trail well behind places like Munich, Gothenburg, um, Marseille, etc. So that's where... Sorry, sorry Paul, just to interject there very quickly. So where we say much smaller, this is a really interesting point. What are we saying specifically here? We're saying cities of a comparable population or, or size? Yes. Let's get specific about that. So, good, good point. So it is their economies are much smaller given the size of those places. So they're much less productive than their European counterparts. So every job that is there is producing much less than what we see in these big cities elsewhere um, in the developed world. Now, we should theory suggests and practice shows that as places get larger, they should get more productive. That happens in most developed countries 
apart from the UK. So London does really, really well. And then you start looking at Manchester, Birmingham, Newcastle, Glasgow, and they don't do very well at all. They trail well behind those comparatives, which they should be on a par with. Now, that has all sorts of implications for the local economy in terms of how much they create. It has all sorts of implications for the national economy in terms of how much they're contributing. But also has um, implications for, I think, that, that broader regional picture that they sit within. Because if that, that economic engine is not producing the jobs and the quality of jobs that they should be, that's reducing the prosperity that is available that then can be accessed by people who live not just within those cities, but around those cities. And yet, when you go and ask the question from a, from a small p political perspective about, well, what are people's perceptions about this? People say, hang on, you're trying to tell me that you're going to go and invest 20 miles down the road and that's going to make my life better. Or you come and invest in, in my local high street, but have the money here, thank you very much. And there's this massive tension you know, that is very difficult for politicians, I think, to try and communicate and so or get around and be able to, to argue that point so have those figures around that to understand that perception i think is really really important but then how do you try and shape that message so in the northeast for example there was a there was a piece a few months ago about Blythe and and relating back to what you were saying earlier uh kieran this perception about we don't we get nothing here all the money goes to london it's it's not fair etc um was sort of the, the, the angle on it the real issue for Blythe is not that there hasn't been loads of money going into to Blythe, although more money always been helpful, uh, at the expense of the Great Southeast. It's that Newcastle is not performing as well as what it should be. So neighbouring Warburth, neighbouring Hexham, which are very uh, much more middle class type places, they do very well about the limit out of the limited number of jobs that are available within Newcastle. Um, the problem for Blythe is that there aren't enough of those jobs. The size of the pie is not large enough, so that Newcastle doesn't just provide jobs for middle class people in in Warburth and Hexham. It actually provides jobs for people living in Blythe to a much greater extent than what is the case at the moment. Seems like a good place to bring in Henry. Um, so Newcastle not performing as well as it should be. I mean, is that is that is that fair? Oh. This is a bit blunt, not, not deliberately blunt way of putting it. But I mean, this is a really interesting topic for me. Is it's kind of what's driving this, and uh, uh, what, what are your thoughts on some of the things Paul mentioned there? Oh, I, I think the, the headline aggregate economic evidence on this is fairly undisputable, and that's not to be pejorative to the cities that we're talking about. It's more going back to your point about levelling up and why it has had some cut through, I think, is because there is uh, there is acceptance of the diagnosis, if you like. I mean, we've all sat in rooms with, with politicians from across different parties, different parts of the country, and listened to Michael Gove talking about um, income inequality, talking about health inequalities, talking about the need for an uptick in city regional productivity in different parts of the country. And everybody sits there nodding for good reason, because absolutely that is the right diagnosis and driving city performance is part of the solution. From the point of view of the regions and making that work for everybody, the version of Newcastle that's performing well has to be a win-win for Blythe as well as it is Newcastle. And actually, if you look at the way that we've developed our economic strategy up here, and I'm sure colleagues across other parts of the country would say too, it has been very deliberately looking at ways in which the towns and cities can work together to drive jobs, to drive skills, to make sure that transport connects the two. So the development of Newcastle as a city, which has a strong research and development base, let's say fantastic universities, great jobs within the service sector is absolutely related to Blythe's development as a centre of expertise for offshore wind and the innovation to drive that. So, so we have to be seeing this as both and. It's not enough to say city performance will drive everything else and we'll just let it happen. And that's the premise really of why people have talked about inclusive growth over the last 
15, 20 years because you have to be able to think not only about how you drive headline economic performance, but how you build the infrastructure for others to benefit from that too. So, so I just want to unpick a bit more with both, with both of you and Holly, bring you in as well. So what, what is it that do we think is driving this comparative weaker performance of, of we could talk about Newcastle and North East, but just generally different regions of the UK and what are the what are the two or three things? I know it's always difficult to simplify it in that way, but what are the sort of two or three things that, that, that the government can do in different areas to try and fix that? I mean, I'll, I'll stay with you, Henry, uh, for the moment. I mean, what do you think is driving that underperformance and what, what can government do about it? So I'd give two answers, which are probably part of the solution that Paul might be able to fill in the gaps on. But uh, I think the, the decision-making and if you like the lack of devolution in the system, from my point of view, is part of the issue. So being able to define what the solution might be, having flexibility over the deployment of skills and economic and transport investment and seeing the join up between those is absolutely part of what is going to make this work for regions in the future. Their self-determination in their model of growth and prosperity, if you like, uh, is a huge, huge part of the mix here. The second bit of this is about the industries that we've got to come and the net zero transition that we have to make as a, as a UK uh, and as, as a world. In fact, if I look at where the Northeast comparative advantage is going to lie over the next few years, it is absolutely in areas where you've got to see a major transition in terms of how uh, economic production literally happens, whether that's decarbonizing the supply chains for particular industries like automotive, or whether that's literally developing new industries like the generation of offshore wind, carbon capture and storage, and how that impacts on the economy more broadly. So I think you've got the ability to then tell what, to go back to what I said at the beginning, a really positive story about the legacy of underperformance, if you like, and how the lessons can be learned and, 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 and translated into really positive progress in future through what are in effect new industries and a new industrial base with, within the UK. And I think the regions outside of the Southeast don't let me get into this as a, as a binary thing. I think it's an under and we need everyone to survive and thrive, but, but there is a huge comparative advantage for parts of the North to be able to drive that, that kind of industrial growth in the future. And that's where we'll be putting a lot of our effort up here. It strikes me, Paul, that obviously uh, the solutions for the Southeast, and this is probably the most obvious thing, but it bears saying the solutions for the Southeast and what's needed there are gonna be different to what's needed in the rest of the rest of the country. So are there, is it, is it about public transport, for example, outside of the Southeast? Are there other issues that uh, are important to try and actually provide solutions to this so that 20, 30 years from now, that underperformance isn't seen? I mean, what, what do you think of some of that? This is a really important thing, I think, to, to stress. I mean, you're saying it might be obvious, but actually I don't think it, it is obvious when we hear the political discourse around this. And again, it comes back to this sense of fairness and is everybody getting you know, what, what they, they should be? The reason why different parts of the country perform the way they do or don't, as the case may be, is for a mix of different reasons, which are not the same in every area. What that means, this points back to then what Henry's saying about devolution, is that we shouldn't expect the policy response to be exactly the same in, in all parts of the country. And yet we always fall back to this element of, it's a normal, it should be, because it should, everywhere should get the same transport spend, everywhere should get the same skills spend, everywhere should get the same whatever spend. Now, of course, if in some parts of the country, transport isn't the problem, but skills is the problem, then you get the same amount of transport spend as somewhere else where, where transport is more of an issue, you know, it's a bit of a fool's errand. So if it's the case that congestion is an issue in London, we should be investing more in transport to deal with congestion in London. If congestion is not a problem in the Northwest, the Northeast, what skills is, we should be shouting about the fact that we need more skills money in the Northeast than what we, we get in London, yet 
we don't really go down that route. Now, the reason as to why we say the underperformance, then we have to think, try to diagnose the diagnose the problem. So the issue is that there aren't enough high productive, particularly these, these new emerging industries that Henry's talking about, there aren't enough of those types of businesses locating outside the greater southeast. That's what we're all all places are competing for about these high productivity businesses. How do you get them in? Well, if we're not getting them in, we have to understand well, what are the barriers to doing that. But again, skills, I think is a big issue. If you're a high-skilled company sticking your pin somewhere on the map of the UK, you're going to most likely do it in the places where you can get the work that you need. Um, that's just, briefly not... in, just, sorry, just briefly interject there, because I know a lot of these words that are like levelling up skills, devolution, which we'll come to, they're used a lot, but I really want to unpick the detail of that. So when we say the skills aren't there, is that literally the case of saying, I don't know, I'm an engineering company, I want to invest in the Northeast, but I don't think there's enough engineers there. Is that, is that literally the, the simplicity of what we're talking about or is it more, more than that? So, so for me, it's broader. I mean, Henry might have a, a more specific view of, about this in terms of experience in the, in the Northeast, but I think sometimes it's, we sort of almost we drill down too much, I think, in saying, oh, well, it's about engineers. Actually, I think it's about having a, a pool of people who have um, who have enough skills to be to or enough knowledge and skills to apply that within the knowledge economy, however that is defined. Now, some of that might be in software development, some of that might be in uh, app development, uh, social media type things, some of it might be in industries that we haven't even dreamt up yet because we can't predict what is going to be mm. in the growth industries of 10 or 20 years' time. Well, you can be pretty sure that if you have, if you're an area that's got a large pool of people that don't even have five, the equivalent of five good GCSEs, you're going to have a problem in terms of getting those businesses in. So that is the, the biggest barrier that we see, I think, across the, across the North and Midlands of England in particular, and in, uh, to Wales as well. Then again, the, the question is about, is the right amount of appropriate commercial space, office space, or lab space, or manufacturing space, or whatever that may be. Then you've got questions about what local transport is. So you've, you've got the, you deal with the skills issue, make sure you've got the right sort of commercial space. Right, have you got transport that then links those workers to those jobs? And that takes you into discussions then about private transport and public transport and trying to address those. It's those three main things that I think places need to think about, but it is the, the mix of those ingredients and the overall recipe, which will vary from place to place, depending on the specific challenges that they face. So this lends itself, I think, Holly, to bring you in here to a discussion around devolution, because again, I mean, the theme I keep coming back to as someone that, that talks about these topics a lot is that, you know, a lot of these words are thrown about, but then I want, you know, you want to get quite specific, don't you, in terms of what the actual tangible solutions mean. So, I mean, I think uh, I'm not going to ask the others to necessarily comment on the politics of this, but I, I, you notice, for example, many people in the Labour Party will talk a lot about devolution. But then to get voters to understand what that means beyond there being a parliament in Scotland, for example, or maybe a regional authority or something something like this, or, it, it is quite tricky. So what does our work, or I mean, that's a very specific point, but what does our work on devolution say in terms of the, the public's understanding of it, Holly, and then, but also some of their priorities around it? Yeah, so the way that we try and break this down, I mean, it, a lot of it always comes back to spend. That's the easiest way to try and get people to understand um, to understand what we're asking them here. So we ask people what they think about local decision-making and kind of increased or greater local authority control over spending in their local area, with a view to that spending then meaning that their priorities can be impacted um, by whoever is in control in that space. And we do see general support. We see a mandate for this across the country. Um, that's both across the whole of the UK 
Uh, we also ask it England specifically as well because of the nature of the the different devolved agreements within the other within the other nations. So we've got 58% of people supporting local authority control for local spending in their area, which is quite a high percentage, and just 15% of people opposing this. It jumps up to 61% in England specifically because it's important that we that we break it down to just England, given, as I said, the nature of the devolution deals in, in Scotland and Wales. And we also ask people specifically about directly elected mayors because these guys have been popping up a little bit more across, across the country. There are lots of areas now who've got quite um, well-established um, local mayors. So we've got, for example, Andy Burnham, we've got Andy Street, we've got Ben Houchin, we've got Tracy Braben. We've got quite a lot of, of mayors, particularly across the northern regions, I would say. There's a little bit less support for this idea specifically. We do see that when we ask questions and it tends to come back to, well, where is the money coming from for this? But in general, there is still a mandate for support for the idea and the concept of a directly elected mayor who is in control of some form of budget and has some form of uh, control over decision making across um, across a local authority area. So. We've got 49% of people supporting this concept across across England specifically. So I think our data, our perception data, and this is tracked across the three waves that we've done, is is showing us there is a general mandate for support for some form of uh, devolved control um, across local regions of of England. So good time to bring Henry in, I think. So so devolution. So what what does that what does successful devolution, what does that working well mean in, in your area, do you think? I mean, how, how, obviously people want the money, but uh, presumably it's not, as, as you've alluded to earlier, it's not just about that necessarily. It's about decision making yeah, as well. I, and... I wonder if I can challenge gently this idea that devolution is always about control. I, I think that the two things are related and obviously uh, the way that we do devolution deals currently, the way that the narrative is framed in the media is often about about money and about who gets to control money and, and where spending comes from. But actually the job and the role of mayors, the job and the role of devolution is just as much about confidence and building confidence in that kind of economic clustering that Paul talked about earlier. So if you look at what's driving um, change within this, let's say Burnham is a good example, or Manchester, it's just as much about the renaissance of the cultural sector, isn't it? And the notion that these are creative cities that people want to be in and live in, and that in and of itself creates that groundswell and economic confidence, because after all, the economy works on the basis of animal spirits, as Keane said, and, and, and as we all know. So we need devolution to be not just an exercise in economic planning, but about how we create thriving places and give people a chance to develop their own story and their own sense of imagination about what they want to become. Now that might sound ethereal, but it is absolutely fundamental. In the Northeast, the way people talk about the place that they're at is not just about where they work and how they get there. It's about the assets of the region. It's about Hadrian's Wall. It's about the football club. It's about the cathedral in Durham. These are all things that devolution should amplify because in a sense, you're trying to, you're trying to sell and create a distinct identity around the region, which in turn drives a change within the way those regions look and feel and, and how it feels to be within them. So I think that is another good reason why we need devolution and why we need this experiment with uh, combined authorities and direct elected mayors to work. And don't forget, we're in the very early stages of that. It, it compared with some of our European and US uh, comrades, we're in uh, in the foothills really of where we need to get to in terms of 
uh, the ability of the regions to, as I've said, write their own story and then start to put significant investment and change behind that. So I think I think we need to keep going. And if I was advising both of the uh, main political parties in the run-up to an election, I would say uh, more of the same in terms of thinking about the levelling up as a premise uh, and the need for devolution in the way that services are delivered, not only in the economic space, because I think ultimately we have to go back to the, the diagnosis that Paul's just given about different places needing different things and not forgetting that universal services delivered to people in Gateshead and Surrey have delivered very different outcomes over the last 50, 60 years. And let's not pretend that the same thing everywhere is going to get the result that we need in terms of narrowing some of those inequalities. So I think there are lots of reasons to be positive about devolution and build on what is already more trust from the public in local politicians and local actors. That is a really vital thing uh, to, to, to keep building on and keep in the mix. Otherwise, you will end up with policy being increasingly distant from the lives that people lead from day to day. Paul, thoughts from you? Well, I think the it's it's interesting the I think the public support that that your figures show around uh, around the direct elected mayors. My suspicion will be that that is something that has grown probably somewhat um, uh, in recent years when all of a sudden people have seen Andy Burnham in particular be able to stand up for his area and uh, and talk about. Um, and talk about it and we know that Andy Burnham's got the best name recognition of, of any of the mayors and, and it's um it's, it's quite significantly more than certainly local authority leaders especially and probably actually rivals uh, quite a few uh, national politicians too so that visibility is very uh, interesting and important and links back to what Henry was saying about creating this narrative and, and being sure being seen there to show leadership rather than just being about control I, I think there's also an element of this which is um Sometimes these things need to, to bed in before people understand the, the value of them. So, you know, going back to the late 90s, there were all sorts of fun fights going on in London about the creation of the Great London Authority and a mayor that would sit above that, and the London boroughs in particular, um, being pretty resistant to that, unsurprisingly, because you know it was the ceding of power from their perspective to a to a, a higher body. But you know, fast forwarding now, so more than 20 years on, I don't think anybody would say that that institution should be repealed. Um, I think that the strange position we find ourselves in is that, is that until very recently, London, one of our most successful cities, was afforded all of this, uh, all this extra power and flexibility, although limited by international standards, um, much greater than what we had elsewhere in the country. And only now are we seeing these powers being um, pushed out to elsewhere. I think it's good. it feels good now that we're in a position that the that policy is going in that direction, that public attitudes seem to be going in that direction. And actually both of the main political parties are talking about greater devolution in the run up to the next election too. So it feels like the, you know, the, the path that we're on with devolution is going very much in the right direction. And it's a case of uh, hopefully a competition at the top between the two main parties to be passing more of those powers down and having more of that money spent locally. So I want to spend the last sort of five minutes or so uh, talking about the future. I mean, Holly, it's worth dwelling on the politics of this a little bit before we bring um, uh, Henry and Paul back in. I mean, when I look at the polling and we ask whether Boris Johnson's government did a good job or, or on various topics, I mean, Liz Trust was <laughs> generally not trying to be flippant, but Liz Trust wasn't there very long to be able to have a record on this. Um, and then sort of Rishi Sunak's government. One of the things that you see both pretty negative public perception of, but also a sense that Labour would generally do better on than the Conservatives, is this idea of levelling up. We, we, we phrase it as redu reducing regional inequalities, uh, otherwise known as levelling up. It seems to be one of the advantages politically, in, at least in public opinion, that Labour have over the Conservatives, along with cost of living and, and NHS, whereas 
when you talk about things like growth, uh, growing the economy, or maybe to a lesser extent, borders, immigration, defense, et cetera, that those, those gaps aren't so big. So presumably this is a really tricky issue for Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives going into the next election, because fundamentally it's such a big issue to show real tangible progress on and at a time when the cost of living is really biting and people are concerned about the economy and there's been this, all this political instability. It doesn't seem like we're going to go into the next election with the public saying, yeah, government's doing a great job on levelling up. It's really, um, it's really sort of meeting what we expected. And so that's a political problem, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the problem that you alluded to at the start is it's a policy that's kind of made up of every other policy, right? So when an economic crisis hits or when there's any sort of issue with the economy, as we've talked about a lot in our recent uh, podcast, Kieran, that jumps right to the top of the issues, issues agenda, dominates the narrative, and lots of the other things either fall by the wayside or people see that those things are then being negatively impacted by the state of the, the economy and the ability of the government to do anything about any of the other kind of smaller, more localised problems that they're seeing. So in terms of how this played out in the index across all 12 of our of our missions that we measure, every single one of them um, decreased since since last year. So the public perception on how the government is performing on these things or how how these things are improving or otherwise in people's lives, they've all gone in a negative direction, particularly uh, things to do with R&D investment, things to do with life expectancy, things to do to do with devolution. So across the whole board of missions, um, we, we saw decreases. I think also uh, an issue that Rishi Sunak has is that awareness of the policy plateaued. Um, as I alluded to at the start as well, this was seen as Boris, Boris Johnson's baby. It was his slogan. It was his campaign strategy you're not seeing it as much in the rhetoric so it's potentially reached its peak in terms of um what the public are i think that their awareness of the strategy and what underpins it and an additional problem i think is also pessimism on delivery um you mentioned there kieran our polling on kind of whether the government's seen as doing a good job or a bad job whether the government are seen as being able to improve people's lives do things better particularly on this policy and the likelihood of levelling up to, to work and reducing inequalities over the short, medium and longer term, the public have again gotten more pessimistic over the past year. So we're down to now 29% of the public thinking it's likely that levelling up is going to actually work in reducing inequalities. And that is the crucial point of his existence, right? That's, that's the key first line in the levelling up white paper. That is its primary purpose. And if a very, very high percentage of the public are not seeing that as likely, it's quite, well, it's unsurprising that the trickle down is then that across the rest of the missions and across their lives as a whole, people aren't seeing uh, tangible changes and aren't feeling particularly pessimistic about seeing tangible changes and improvements with the, uh, with the measurable targets um, that the government has given themselves to hit some of this stuff by 2030. So I'll bring our guests in. I mean, so the degree of public pessimism, I suppose, which isn't specific to this topic, although as we talked about, as Holly mentions there, it's obviously cuts across several other policy areas. But there's a degree of public pessimism about lots of things uh, at the moment, and this is obviously this is, subject is one of them. But nevertheless, a degree of pessimism anyway. So I suppose, Henry, how does how, how do policymakers address that, um, and where do you see this conversation going in the sort of short and medium term? So to an extent, I would disaggregate the policy and the politics on all of this, because if you were to to take um, 
Holly's exposition of that public data at face value and, and dig into it a bit, I'm sure people will be talking about transport, about skills, about the jobs that they have, about the, how, the quality of the housing and the extent to which they feel economically ready enough to, to move to the next stage in their lives. Those are, are, are never not going to be big issues for people. They are doorstep issues. Whether we call them levelling up or not, they will remain huge issues for everybody across the whole country. So I think to some extent, we have to be really clear about uh, what comprises of levelling up and roll with the punches a little bit in terms of the political framing of, of, of some of that. Having said that, I do think that um, there's something in setting out long-term missions, I think, or, or, or goals, which, which have a degree of cross-government buy-in to them. I think that's an important process. Now, you could argue about the extent to which that's happened. I think some departments are probably more uh, pro-levelling up, quote-unquote, than, than others are. But, but we, as local citizens, as people within cities and regions, as local government even, we experience all of government all of the time. And so actually anything that starts to join up departments to focus on the meaning of what they do in a holistic sense, I think is a good thing. I also think we should be really careful about stopping and starting again and again and again, because what that does is create a situation where uh, people who are mandated to deliver on this work, people like myself, I guess you could say, um, end up being like cats at the light, jumping at the latest light whenever the latest funding stream is released, when what we should be doing is working on long-term plans that have buy-in from uh, the public that are democratically led and that we are confident can be delivered because they build on what the regions are good at. To go back to some of what Paul was saying, now any national policy that mitigates against that is I think going to undermine that sense of uh, progress towards improving the productivity of our city regions over time. So I am fundamentally a Democrat. I absolutely believe that you know a new government should one be elected has the right to be able to define the agenda however they would like but it is absolutely important that we don't lose what's good about this agenda and that we make sure that there's enough devolution and local democracy in the mix to help us to, to drive these things forward over the long term because those changes are really big and they're going to take quite a while yeah and the i mean the i think within that so the leveling up white paper was was pretty good if you put it in the context that was created by the beast which is the uk government with all its different departments and i don't think you're ever going to get anything perfect it was it was probably pretty much the the best version of maybe what it what it could have been um the i think the frustration with it you know, going to then the, the question about the, what the party should do is that the labor hasn't really seemed to endorse it but not endorse it and politically i understand why that would be the case but actually so they've you know, going behind it, throwing their way behind it and say, this is a good blueprint for what needs to happen over the next 20 years would be helpful to provide some of that certainty. I think even more frustrating is that the Conservative Party itself hasn't really got behind the, the white paper since it was released. Um, you know, it was published, then the, the invasion of Ukraine happened and then attention switched and then, and then there was a change of Prime Minister. Liz Truss seemingly didn't even know that the white paper existed. Um, and then we had Rishi Sunak come in and he seems to have been pretty lukewarm about uh, about talking about it. Now, what you really need is both parties to say there's a blueprint here. You might change things around the edges, but the 12 missions, and this is what we're, we're going to go for, irrespective of, of who's in government next. Then I think from the Conservative side, they really shouldn't need to have something to show before the next election, and they haven't got much time in order to do that. What is that going to be? And then you want both parties setting out what it is that they're going to do in terms of the next stage. So if we're in phase one or phase 1A of levelling up and phase 1B is the next parliament, 
tell us what's that's, what that's going to be and have that competition. Now, on a devolution front, I'd say they both have committed to that. I think that's a, a good place to be in. But what else? What else is the vision? What is the Labour vision? What is the Conservative vision? Because it's not clear that they do back their own white paper. That's, I think, the sort of stuff that we would like to see, you know, as, as observers and, and commentators on this. And I'm sure that's something that, that Henry and colleagues would want to see as well in terms of being able to try and deliver something around it. So final, final couple of remarks then from both of you. Um, so Henry, just last minute or so, uh, what, what do you think are the key messages to take away from this discussion and, uh, uh, and priorities for the future of this topic? I know it's hard to condense into such a short time frame, but what do you think are the main, the main things to be thinking about looking forward? So for me, I think the data really supports this idea that we need areas to start to shape what good looks like from our point of view. I think it is not a tenable thing to do to uh, sit back, light a pipe and complain about the national agenda when actually we should be using the powers and flexibilities we have to tell a story about where our economy needs to go in future and what investments need to be put around that. Now, um, there's plenty of places across the UK doing a good job. But I don't think that levelling up is a, is, is a policy platform that can ever be fully written out and written through by our colleagues in Whitehall. They should be setting the broad framework and thinking about, um, if you like, the tax and spend base that sits behind that. But it's for the regions to start to develop a really proactive version of uh, what the next 10, 20, 30 years looks like. So there's just as much of a compulsion on us as there is on central government to start to answer the question that, that Paul has posed. Now, there is a positive environment that be, can be created for that by each party continuing to push forward uh, on devolution and, and making sure that that doesn't disappear from the policy platform. I think that needs to be embraced. I think that needs to be doubled down on. And I think you'll see that there's credible delivery and great insight will come from the regions to deliver on that. And Paul, final thoughts from you? So uh, good politics doesn't equal good economics. It was ever thus. I think it's for for either party, it's about trying to understand how do you bring those things together. So from the from the economy side of levelling up and from the growth side, if we've got a growth problem. What are we going to do about uh, about tackling those barriers that we see uh, to growth in, in different parts of the country? And then for those places where um, we shouldn't be expecting them to be the next centre of you know, the tech industry or whatever it is, um, what are we doing for those areas? What are we doing for them around skills? What are we doing for them around public services and having that that clear vision about, uh, about making sure that places aren't being left behind from a social um, uh, perspective and have then got access to opportunities that may exist from an economy perspective, even if those opportunities aren't literally in their hometown. And Holly, from an Ipsos perspective, I mean, this is obviously something that's a key priority for us to keep tracking. I mean, what are you looking out for in, uh, in, in the data uh, looking forward? I think one of the crucial things to, to continue to look at is, um, I know we've talked a lot about the, the regional inequalities as part of this podcast. Um, it's the intra-regional inequalities that I find quite quite uh, interesting as well, and the cuts between the differences between rural areas, urban areas, the intra-regional differences between different types of places um, as defined by kind of different ONS classifications. So that's what we'll continue to look into because um, as both Henry and Paul have, have spoken about, this isn't a kind of north versus south problem. This is a this is an everything and everywhere um, problem. And we will then be hopefully running our next levelling up tracker, which everyone should definitely look out for uh, in the next couple of months. So it would be interesting, again, to see if there have been any shifts in the public perceptions data off the back of the local elections um, and any things that the, the government might start to spring up with the view to the uh, 
the, well, the long view, hopefully, of the general election coming up at some point next year, which I know we're, we're keenly looking forward to, aren't we, Kieran? Oh, of course. It's it's like it's like Christmas rolled into <laughs> Easter, rolled into all sorts of different things. So very much. Different. I can't believe it's nearly been five years, but uh, I suppose quite a bit's happened in that time. Uh, but yes, we'll repost some of that leveling up work along with this podcast uh, that Holly refers to, just for people that are listening to this or watching this that might be interested and not seen it yet. But uh, certainly, we'll leave it there for today. Certainly, lots of uh, really interesting topics that we will return to in the future. Uh, but big thanks to my guests, Henry Kippin and Paul Swilly. Thank you for joining us. And Holly, of course, always a pleasure. Um, and if you like what you've listened to and heard then, uh, or seen, please do subscribe to the Ipsos Politics Talk uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, my name is Kieran Pedley. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>